What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. There's this idea that somehow success is starting something and being done with it in five years. Well, what would have happened if Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Christine McDivitt or Ann Baker had said, I've done this for five years. I, you know, I, I, I'm just ready to do something else. That one was good enough for what it was. Now we're going to start a new one. No, the great power comes in taking that flywheel as far as it can go. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Today's episode What Makes Great Companies Tick? There's a huge cultural zeal right now for starting companies. But there's also a new mythology that says that the person who starts a scrappy, fast-growing enterprise isn't necessarily the person who can or should run it long-term. That's both right in a way and totally wrong, according to our guest today. You've heard of his best-selling books, Good to Great and Built to Last. He's one of the world's foremost thinkers on building sturdy, robust businesses, And his work over the past three decades broke ground on ideas like giving companies visions beyond just making money and harnessing the momentum of a flywheel. These are simply common practices now in Silicon Valley, but the ideas came from research and writing, all done over the years by Jim Collins. Jim is the author of eight books, including the newly released Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0. He's also a founder himself of a management laboratory in Boulder, Colorado. But before Jim began his journey to three decades of researching leadership and finding patterns that lead to success or failure, he found motivation in something missing from his own life. I grew up in uh, Boulder, Colorado and, and in San Francisco. And, and in fact, you know, my father, who in many ways I think instilled in me a lot of drive principally because he was absent, right? And, and so the absence of a father really became, in a certain sense, uh, driving fuel for me, if you will, I, as, as the sense of something was really missing and that created what I would describe as almost hot coals in my stomach. I didn't know where those, where, how I would deploy the energy. I just could feel it growing. And, 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 and interestingly, there were certain aspects of our own of my own development that probably just had uh, ways of looking at the world maybe different than what some other kids grew up with. When I was in first grade, uh, my father uh, took us to San Francisco and he was an artist. And we, uh, we went to San Francisco and we moved five houses down from Hate Street, five or six on Ashbury. 1964 wow. to 1967. So if you wanna talk about ground zero of the zeitgeist of the time, Literally, I, if I walked out my front door 
and I threw a baseball, I could hit that famous Haight-Ashbury sign. Like that was where I lived. And to be dropped as a first grade kid into the middle of the hate. Now I had no idea what it was all about. I was just a first grade kid, but uh, my dad sort of took us to these places and then he went off and did his art. And, and I think just, just kind of looking at the world through like, wow, this is just, just my eyes were open in different ways. Like, what is all this about? This seems somewhat chaotic. And then the sense of drive that came from being, uh, if you will, fatherless while I had a father. And then my dad died when I was relatively young. And I, um, uh, and I think what that really uh, continued to leave in me was the sense of I needed, I was just interested in deploying myself, but I really didn't know how. And I really didn't know how I was going to take all this energy I felt and make good use of it. And there's actually a, a moment, and I haven't shared this story very, very widely. So there's, there's a kind of a critical moment, I think, when uh, I got interested in kind of the questions. And I was, uh, I, I, I had studied mathematical science as undergraduate, and that led me to uh, a job that I took before I returned to graduate school, which was to be an analyst. It's basically doing economic modeling and so forth at uh, McKinsey and Company in San Francisco. And one day I, I came out after having basically done a bunch of you know, computer mathematical modeling on a Saturday. And I, and I looked down the hall and by the Xerox machine were a stack of orange binders. Now McKinsey only had blue binders. So I thought, what are these orange binders? So I, I walked down the hall and I opened them up and uh, there's this thing and they say the excellence project. This is 1981, 82. And Tom Peters had his office across the hall from me and Bob Waterman had played a role in hiring me who was also in the San Francisco office and they were doing the research on what would become in search of excellence. And so I just started flipping through it and I got fascinated and I went down the hall. I said, can I help with this in any way? And, uh, and so they put me off to do some very background junior research on Boeing. And I, I went and I was studying, uh, I was learning about the history of Boeing, how, how this guy named Bill Boeing, and later it was Bill Allen who saved the company after World War II, uh, Bill Boeing had, had this grand idea that he was gonna start a company that would make things that fly. And this is before World War II. And then he ended up going into the furniture business at one point just to bring in cash to keep the company going. And then came out with these early aircraft and then came the second world war. And then came like building these big flying machines in the B-17 and the B-29. And then came this amazing situation where they lose 92% of their revenues overnight at the end of the war. And they end up figuring out how to take what they've learned and move into the commercial airspace and bet the company on the 707. And then that, that brings the world into the jet age. And, and I remember reading this and what struck me was the human drama of it was this was a great human drama. It's like, this is interesting. These people doing this amazing thing, airplanes and big things that fly and betting their lives. And I just got interested. And I think that's when the seed went in of the questions that I was interested in. Then years later, when I had the opportunity to begin teaching entrepreneurship and small business at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, I got the syllabus for the first time I was going to teach the class and I had the syllabus in my hands and um, and I and I was looking at an old version of the syllabus and the opening line said something like this will be a course on the mechanics and challenges of the entrepreneur and the small business manager and I remember looking at that and thinking to myself 
that just seems too small. And so I ended up crossing out the opening line of the syllabus and rewriting it. And it said something like, this will be a course on how to turn a new venture or small business into an enduring great company. Boom. And I remember looking at it and thinking, wow, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> but <laughs> this is the frame I want for my students. And, and so I, I took the course and reframed it around what struck me was what I really wanted was I didn't want my students just to start businesses or to like, start something and cash out and get rich and then not know what to do with the rest of their lives or any of that stuff. I wanted them to be the folks who would start the companies that would become truly significant, that would be admirable, that would have an impact on the world, that would last, that would be these great journeys. I wanted to set the bar way up there. They should be the next Disney, the next Boeing, right? The next Apple. That's what they should aspire to build and to settle for nothing less. And so the course became, this is what the challenge of the course is, to go from a small or new venture to that stature, whatever that is going to be in the future, that is what I want this to be. And then that's what really began, really what has carried over for the last 30 years, which is the question of uh, what makes a great company tick and led to all the research that was ultimately around that question. So that's kind of the arc of how it all happened. I didn't know I was a math guy. I had no idea that I would end up looking at these things. I was interested in philosophy. I didn't know that studying business was really just philosophy. I just was driven and ended up there and fortunately discovered something delightful, which is business is where the data is. I'm not a business author primarily. I'm interested in great human journeys and great questions and great, how you build great things. And it just so happens through the lens of business is a way you can rigorously address the question. Right. I mean, I can hear that even today in in that spark of enthusiasm in your voice when you talk about Boeing, that that, that really inspired you. And then I love that just a line, that that line on the top of the syllabus kind of inspired 30 yep. years of a career. Um, that's an yep. incredible, incredible bit of knowledge. Um, you know, your, the, your two best known books were Built to Last and Good to Great. And um, they just, they offer these tangible frameworks to understanding why organizations succeed. But what I love about the writing of them is that every meaningful bit opens with sort of a portrait of a great leader, um, or many of them do. And and you can kind of feel these people and who they are. Um, mm -hmm. And you give us this lens into how companies work. Um, for, but for folks who haven't dug into good to great, what what's a piece of knowledge from it that is still wildly relevant uh, 20 years later? Well, so uh, I appreciate the question, because one of the goals that I had in doing the research on what makes great companies tick was to, I, whenever we did the research and whenever I would write, I would always wear a 50 year lens and say to myself, if I'm reading this 50 years from now, or if I could even read it a hundred years from now, which of course I wouldn't be able to, would I like what I've written and feel that it is still true? That's the standard. And so everything in all of our work went through that winnowing lens of will this idea stand the test of time as what truly separates and distinguishes a great company from the others? What are the enduring principles of that? Not the current practices, 
the enduring principles of that. And I would like to describe it as the ideas are durable. They were always incomplete, right? Because you're always learning new things. So you never know everything, but you shouldn't have to go back later and say, ah, that was wrong. This is right. You should be able to go back and say that was right, but incomplete. And I, I, so when I look at, say, the principles in good to great, and I think about them through the lens of the entrepreneur today, um, there are multiple principles in there, but let me highlight two that I think are particularly, particularly relevant today. Because it kind of if you go through certain phases, you might, well, actually there are three, but let me, let me, let me hit two or three and we can chat about them. <laughs> hit two at least, because I think I have one that, that I'd love to talk about and pull out. Oh, which one is it? I'm curious. I, I, I just think that so many companies today, um, I mean, I, I haven't talked to a company in a long time that doesn't have, you know, this a mission statement or core vision or guiding principles before it launches. Mm-hmm. That used to seem groundbreaking, this thing that you wrote about. Mm-hmm. And now it's just common knowledge. It's just yeah. common practice. As you know, I, I recently re-released my very first book, Beyond Entrepreneurship, as BE 2.0. And that was the book that my mentor, Bill Azir, and I wrote, which was grew out of our course that we taught at Stanford. And it was kind of before most all the research had happened. It was drawing from our cases. And I was early a few years into the research that would become uh, built to last. And, uh, and then I've come back and, and revisited it. And interestingly, some of the uh, companies that we interacted with that were startup companies back when Bill and I were writing that now are two, three decades down the road, like Ann Baker at Telecare or the friend, my friends at DPR Construction who used the early version of Beyond Entrepreneurship uh, to set the foundation for their companies, which are now quite a few decades down the road. And it's kind of fun to see the circle. In that, there's an interesting little story uh, in BE 2.0 that I I wrote in. Um, It's a a new essay, and it's it's called DPR's Constitutional Convention for Greatness. And and one of the things we learned in built-to-last research, what are the companies become really visionary and enduring over time, and uh, is this, we learned about the importance of having this foundational set of principles and values, and that these were in place before the companies became successful. And the image that I have in my mind is like the founding of the country. You have a declaration of independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And then translated into a practical framework called the Constitution. And what we found in our research is that whether it was implicit or explicit, the truly great and lasting companies, their founders did for those companies what the founders of our country did for the founding of the United States. They thought, what are the truths that we hold to be self-evident? What are the values that we want to hold to and try to aspire to and do better with, right, over time? And what are kind of the real working framework that would be like the Constitution? And I I tell this little story in there about DPR construction and how they were just starting out and they were, uh, you know, some founders who had left another company and and, and, I, and I said, well, based on our research, one of the first things you should do is really think about what are the core values and the enduring purpose of this company. And I remember them sitting there saying, we're builders. What are you doing talking about values and purpose and you know, audacious goals? We're, we're builders. We build stuff. And, and so I, I gave them the constitution analogy and uh, 
declaration analogy. And I said, you, you want to build a great company, you should think about this. You, you're, 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 you're like the framers of the, of the country. So we ended up doing literally a constitutional convention. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we went up to this winery and, and the founders of the company were there. And, and I just sort of laid out the framework uh, that had come from our work about you know, values, purpose, and BHAGs and all this stuff that went, had the roots in the research. And they ended up framing their company on a set of values and a purpose back then. And everybody talks today as if purpose is new. It's, only, it's always been what separated great companies. And we knew 30 years ago from our research that that was true. That was one of the things that separated. And they had this wonderful moment where they were thinking about the purpose of the company. Should it be like save humanity or something? And it's like, no, we're builders. And they said, we build stuff. Well, is that it? No, actually our real purpose is we exist to build great things. We wanna build great buildings. We wanna build a great culture. We wanna build a great company. We wanna build great leaders. We build great things. And then that became the foundation and that became, then they began to think about how are we gonna do that? What are the pieces? What are the mechanisms? 30 years later, it's an enormously successful private company going into the second and third generation of leadership, but they can go back to those foundations just as we can go back to the foundations of the Declaration and the Constitution. And that's what a really, really great founding team can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that one, it, it was groundbreaking when you first wrote it. And today, I can't tell you the last time I talked to a company that didn't have a, a set of kind of core core principles that they're founded mm -hmm. on, guiding principles, core vision, whatever you call it. They stick them to their walls. They go refer back to them, whether it's one, whether it's 10. You know, they every every startup I've met has those, those on their wall. Um, and so that's been just an incredible influence. What are some of the other, um, other things you look back on on um, now or that you feel like are particularly mm -hmm. relevant? So, so first of all, the, the notion of building upon a set of values and a purpose beyond money and so forth, that goes all the way back to built to last. And then in Good to Great, which came after that, which asked the question, can you turn a good company into a great company? There are multiple key ideas in that. One of them uh, is the principle of the flywheel. And uh, let me just share with you a little story about the flywheel. And what I see is it's real importance today. So in 2000, 2001, uh, just after Good to Great was published, I was asked to go up to Seattle uh, to share the ideas and to meet with the board and to meet with the chief executive of a young small company named Amazon. And if you remember in 2001, uh, this was just in the wake of the dot-com bust. And there was massive carnage in the dot-com industry. It was post 9-11, but people also even wondered if Amazon, I mean, we think today about Amazon seeming so invincible, but in 2001, it didn't seem invincible. It was, a, a, a it was dark days in Seattle. And I met with the executive team and I met with uh, members of the executive team and I met with the board and, I, and, 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 and Bezos. And, uh, and all I did was teach the ideas. I don't consult, I don't tell people what they should do. I just teach, right? If I go to the research and teach, I figure really smart people can figure out how to use the ideas themselves. And one of the things I said was, don't respond to this as a crisis, respond 
as a flywheel. And I taught the whole flywheel principle. And the idea being that if you look at how a great company gets built, it never happens in a single step. You know, we were talking earlier about Eileen, Eileen Fisher, right? Who you had in your show last year. And she's talking about, she started in 1984 and she built it step by step by step. Uh, Sandra O'Lynn, y'all want to build a great grand brand and great company by doing it in a sustainable compounding building way, right? That's, that's flywheel way of thinking. And it's like you start pushing on this giant heavy flywheel and after a lot of effort, you get one giant slow creaky turn, but you don't stop. You eventually get two turns and then four and eight, 16 and 32 and a hundred and a thousand and a million and a billion. And at some point that flywheel has got all this compounding cumulative momentum. And if somebody were to say, so what's the one big thing that made it go, you can't answer the question because it's, it's a cumulative effect of the flywheel over time. And any great company is a flywheel. Well, why is that? Why have I come back to the flywheel recently, especially for entrepreneurs? Well, there are a couple reasons. The first is I, I learned, and I learned from Amazon, is this was a great case where the, in many ways the student became the teacher of the teacher. I learned from them. They took the flywheel principle, and then they asked a brilliant question, which is, so how does our flywheel work? Exactly how does our flywheel work? And if you look at what came, it was sent, the essence of it, you picture this sort of loop it starts with we offer lower prices on more stuff. And if we do that, well, then we can't help but, it's not steps, it's we can't help but bring more customers. And if we bring more customers, we can't help but attract third-party sellers. And if we attract third-party sellers, we can't help but expand the store and extend distribution. And if we do that, we can't help but grow revenues per fixed cost, which then will allow us to lower costs on more things and and around and around that flywheel would go and because they they understood their specific flywheel and then built it in imaginative ways over time you really to understand amazon is not an event it's a flywheel that renews and expands over time and i want more entrepreneurs to really embrace the flywheel idea and that brings me to a second part so first of all the, the thing to realize is that the way you don't build a great company is to take a flywheel to a hundred and then, oh, we need to do something totally different, then go back to zero to a hundred, then back to zero, then to a hundred. No, it's when you go from a hundred to a thousand and a thousand to a million and a million to a billion and the great returns happen in the compounding down the road. That is how greatness truly gets built. And, uh, and then that brings me to a second part about entrepreneurs today. There's this idea that somehow success is starting something and being done with it in five years. Well, what would have happened if Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Christine McDivitt or Ann Baker had said, I've done this for five years, I, you know, I, I, I'm just ready to do something else. That one was good enough for what it was. Now we're gonna start a new one. No. The great power comes in taking that flywheel as far as it can go. And I want more entrepreneurs to think about the idea that you might, you know, instead of thinking about what's the next big thing, to embrace the idea that the next big thing may well be the big thing you already have. And how do you take that thing and make it into 
this massive compounding flywheel. In today's world, I would love for more entrepreneurs to embrace that. You're, you're the, the fellow from Reddit, Steve, who came out and came back. Steve Huffman, yeah. Reddit. Yeah, Steve yeah. Huffman. He left the flywheel he had and then had to come back. And now his life is really making that flywheel go. When we come back, I'll talk with Jim about how he met Steve Jobs and how the next great thing might be right under your own nose. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You've spent your career studying successful people and successful organizations, but you're also known as a relentless self-improver yourself and an <laughs> entrepreneur yourself. Yeah. You know, you were a business professor and then you went independent and you made that choice to step away and, and build your own world around you. At what point did you start to take lessons from the companies and the leaders <laughs> you were studying and build them into the way you work and live? So this is a, an interesting part of the, kind of, I guess, my own journey and odyssey, if you will. So I felt this desperate need for having a father because I didn't really get one. And I set out to create my own father. I decided if I didn't get one, I'll build one, I'll make one, I'll create one. And so I did that in three ways. Uh, first, I decided to read something like 100 biographies. The second is and I remember when this happened, I came up with this idea called a personal board of directors, which is another thing that's commonly used now. But I, I'm oh, not sure super it was. common! I hear it all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the first my my I think the very very first penning of that is in an Inc. article that I wrote uh, for, uh. for Inc. Yeah, and it's, it was called I think they titled it "Watching Out for Number One" or something. It was about the personal board, which goes all the way back to the early '80s when I said I'm going to create a personal board of directors uh, to to replace the fact that I didn't have a father. And then the third in that was the idea of mentors. And I had a really great mentor by the name of Bill Azir, who is really the person that I wanted to pay homage to in bringing out BE 2.0 because he was my co-author on it and tremendous mentor. Well, one of the lessons that Bill taught me uh, is that there come these moments in life where you have to decide to make an irreversible leap. You have to go all in. And, and I remember from his own story, uh, he, there, he, he was of a different era, a different generation, and he was rising up within an accounting firm. And he'd always had this dream to be an entrepreneur. And he was a really good accountant. I mean, he was very successful, very a prestigious firm. And he was right on the cusp of being named partner. And I remember when Bill told me the story, he said, so how do you think I felt about that? And I said, uh, I don't know. And he said, like prison mm -hmm. was essentially the message. And he, and he decided before they could make him partner to resign. So he said, you know, I was afraid that if I got used to that, 
I'd never leave. And what I learned from Bill is that becoming successful as an entrepreneur is a two-part equation. It's, it's the probability successful entrepreneur is a function of probability that you will succeed if you start times probability that you will start. And Bill was worried about the second part, that at some point the probability that he would actually start would go down and he would never make the leap. So he quit and went off and that's when he did his entrepreneurial path. And then after that, he became a professor, really interesting life. So there came this critical part in my own journey. And I was teaching the course on entrepreneurship and small business at Stanford, challenging my students to go out and build great companies. And my students started challenging me and they kept saying, so you're challenging us to take this entrepreneurial path, to carve our own path, to uh, you always tell us you don't have to be at IBM to be in business. You can go create your own. So what does being a professor, being at a university, if you basically commit your life to that, have to do with being an entrepreneur? <laughs> right. And, and, I, and I realized that they were really right. And so for a whole series of reasons, there came this moment where I kind of did the bill thing, where I decided that I would leave and go off on my own. And Joanne and I call it our Thelma and Louise loop. There's that famous movie, Thelma and Louise, where they're in the car. And at the end of the movie, they you know drive out across the chasm, except that we wanted to reach the other side, right? And, <laughs> and, and, and we have this image of us leaping out in the car and, and there, there was this point where I just said, I'm going to invert the words. I, I'm, I don't want to be a professor of entrepreneurship. I want to be an entrepreneurial professor. And if I, I want to figure out how to write and teach and do research as if I was at a university, but without the university. And I've got built to last and I'm going to bet on my own work. And I'm going to place a huge bet that that can work. And Joanne, We've been married now for 40 years, was in this with me, and we made the Thelma and Louise leap out over the chasm. I think I always have this image of the, the car hitting the other side with only two of the four wheels, and you're not sure if you're going to careen back into the chasm or whether you're going to somehow bounce up and over. We were down to, I think, something like five or $7,000 total assets at that point, and we were quite scared. Somehow the car bounced up on the other side. Things started to gain traction and then went on from there to all the uh, resources from uh, built to last to turn right around and plowed right back into what became good to great just made another really big bet that's fantastic and what about uh, kind of the self-improvement and productivity stuff the day-to-day -day, how you work what have you learned from the leaders you've studied um, i know there's probably far too much to even talk mm -hmm. about today but if you could pull out a couple of examples i'm sure we'd all love it a couple of the things I've really learned from others is if you have more than three priorities, you don't have any. And this idea that the, the best ones that I have studied over time, we've had the privilege of studying some of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. They're, they're really good at not just what to do, but maybe even better at what to not do. And they use like a not to do list and a stop doing list, either implicitly or explicitly, incredibly well. You tend to think that discipline is all in doing more, working harder, sleeping less, right? All that stuff. Actually, discipline is in ruthless clarity about 
what you are not going to clutter your time and your life with. You're just not going to. Uh, I, I was really, I was really struck in uh, one of your, uh, one of your inter interviews again back to Eileen Fisher, and she talked a lot about the notion that she learned to say no. Right? It, it, that's a very different thing than I learned to work hard. I learned to say no. And that's that's a, a, a big one that uh, that that we've learned. A second one that really has uh, th that I go back to is something that observed in studying Andy Grove, which is never let go of your calendar. Even running Intel, he kept his own calendar. And he did that because the one the most precious strategic asset you have as an executive is this one thing you can't get any more of, which is called 24 hours. And so he's like, well, if that's the most precious resource I have, I can't delegate it. I can't delegate my calendar. So those are a couple of things that I've learned uh, from, from others. I think the other uh, really big one is this. One of the best ways to manage your time is to focus a lot less on the what and focus a lot more on the who. So if you are always trying to figure out what to do, what should we do about this? What should we do about that? What direction we go? What action should we take? What, 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 what? Well, you're gonna eventually be overwhelmed by the number of what's. But if you change the question and say, not what should we do, but who should I have working on this? Who should I partner with? Who should I work with? That if you get the who's right, you have to spend a lot less time on the what. And you're going to get better what's in the end anyway. So the earlier you make that shift from framing your decisions around what to framing your decisions as who, the better your own life is going to be. And it is ultimately the secret to both having a life and building a company. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love that in Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0, you, you talk about how it's more important to have the right people on the bus than to have the perfectly right idea. Mm -hmm. but, but there's this big question, right? How do you know who are the right people? Um, this year in particular, there's been a great reckoning in the human resources departments of companies all over the country in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. Hiring practices are being reformed and the formerly common practices of pattern matching are actively being disavowed. What's your view from 2020 or 2021 as we are in now there? And how can companies do better at, at hiring really openly, hiring creatively and hiring rights right now? Yeah, I think that the, uh, so I, I go all the way back to something that I really learned in when we were doing the research and built to last that actually then carries forward and really comes alive today. Uh, my co-author, Jerry Porras, uh, was um, really a great, a great, great mentor as well and a great research mentor. And uh, Jerry, uh, Jerry is Latino and uh, was one of the early uh, Latino professors uh, on campus. And we used to talk about the questions of you know, how does the lens of diversity fit with the lens of and, and inclusion, which would be a term that would be very much used today, fit with what we're seeing in our research. And Jerry made a very interesting observation, which was 
he, he said, what I've learned through my experience is that what, what we want to have is very deeply shared, really small number of values. And then we want to have a wide diversity in people. And that notion of the idea that we can put, we can have shared values and diversity of people. And then a second part that I think in today's world, let me, like, something I think that's become really even acutely uh, clear to me in the last um, six months or so, as we've all been to say going through the pandemic, is that we think a lot about, you know, hiring the right people that's by right people, meaning the ones who will really embrace the values of the company and help it be great. And you can have a wide range of people who can do that. But there's also this other question, which is the humanity of caring for your people. And I think what, what has just become very clear to me is the importance of caring for your people. I, uh, I put a story in BE 2.0 that had a big impact on me. It came from a fellow named General Lloyd Austin. And uh, General Lloyd Austin, uh, who actually is, is now um, quite possibly going to be our next uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, became a very good friend of mine uh, when I was doing my chair for the study of leadership at the United States Military Academy at West Point, where I had this great two-year appointment and got to learn about leadership there by going and holding this chair to study it and to engage with cadets. General Austin, one of the great general officers, he was a four-star, uh, ended up as last post as commander of CENTCOM, um, tremendous military uh, career, tremendous respect of his people. And we're talking one day about his own career arc. And he told me this story about how a few years out of West Point, he was West Point, I think, class of like 75. A few years out of West Point, he was wondering, you know, how am I doing? How's my career going and so forth? And he said, you know, one day I just decided that I was going to stop asking that question. And instead of taking care of my career, I decided I would take care of my people. And everything changed. And that was what he saw as sort of his inflection point because he said they would not let me down. And as I look at this the, the, the sort of time of turmoil and challenge that we're in of all different kinds. I mean, you know, we have economic, we have pandemic, we have societal, we have all kinds of things, right? So we know that the, the first thing is we have to very much rely on each other. And if, if there's one thing that I hope comes out of this time, it's something, it's that notion of what am I going to do to help other people and if I'm in a leadership role, what am I going to do to really take care of people and take care of our people? Because if we do that well, if we really take care of our people, so many of the other things will take care of themselves. And for me, for a 2021 lesson, that is one that I, I hope we really embrace. Absolutely. I mean, I guess I've been thinking too, you know, the, this theme of the past year for me that the one positive has been nurturing our communities, whatever that mm -hmm. means for us, you know, and the companies that are fortunate enough or, or good enough to not have lost staff this year, 
turning back to them and asking how can we help you has been just the, this bright light um, that I really hope continues. continues. I was going, yeah, yeah. I hope it continues. Um, the one thing I was going to ask you, uh, you tell another story um, about about 2007 um, when you got a call from Steve Jobs that mm. that also is relevant to this um, this discussion of of treating your people well. Mm-hmm. Can you tell that story as well? Yeah, in 2007, I got a call uh, from Steve Jobs, and and he and I had talked multiple times over the years. In fact, in 1988, I think it was, when I was first starting to teach my course on entrepreneurship and small business, I I, I had written that thing in the syllabus. I, I want to talk about building and doing great companies. And uh, and then I thought, I don't know what I'm, what I'm doing. So I, I figured I need somebody to lend some gravitas to the class. So I just picked up the phone out of the blue and I called Steve Jobs and I said, hey, you know, I'm teaching this course on entrepreneurship and small business. And would you come, you know, and I want them to build great companies and you co-founded Apple, like, would you come down and spend some time with me helping to teach my students? And Steve very graciously agreed. And of course, midway through that, that session, he kind of quipped, well, I got booted out of my last company and that was 1988. And I got to meet him when he was in his wilderness years. I mean, it, it, we all know about Steve Jobs over the whole arc of his life, but in 1988, he was truly in the wilderness and, mm. and, and he, uh, but he never lost the passion for what he was doing and he was growing and he was learning. And then that, that sort of leads me to sort of this, this fast forward. There's a really key point here. Anyone who's an entrepreneur, please accept that there's a Steve Jobs 1.0 and a Steve Jobs 2.0. And that there, there, there was entrepreneurial immaturity and, and you can read about the famous sort of behavior patterns that sort of marked a young Steve Jobs. But Steve Jobs 1.0 could not have done what Steve Jobs 2.0 did to reinvigorate Apple into the great company it became much more measured, much more seasoned. And as part of that was an evolution to seeing that it's not about just being a genius with a thousand helpers. It's about creating a culture of genius that ultimately doesn't need the genius. And so in 2007, so this is now almost two decades after he first came to my class and I get this call and he says, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, this idea I have for Apple University because what I want to do is to make, I want to put in place the pieces that Apple's going to go on and want to be a really, really great company that doesn't in the end need him. And I have to instill that into what Apple's all about so that people really understand the principles here. It's not just on me. And so we're, we're beginning to talk about this and I, I turned, uh, I couldn't resist asking him. So I, I'm really curious, uh, in 1997, when you came back and Apple was nearly dead, what were the first things you thought about doing? Now, here you have one of the greatest product visionaries of all time. And of course there was you know, shoring up cash flow and a number of things just to make sure the company would survive. But I thought maybe he might start talking about object-oriented operating systems or revitalizing the Macintosh computers or maybe some early nascent ideas for what later would become the iPod or whatever. And that's not what he talked about. He said, the first thing is I started finding the people 
who still passionately believed in the original ideals that I could build upon. They were still in the woodwork. And I had this image of like finding the scattered Jedi underneath the, you know, the, the auspices of the empire to sort of rebuild and then spark the, 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 the regeneration of the company. And here was somebody who then saw that the building blocks were finding and building and working with people in a culture. And of course, what's happened since? We lost Steve, but we didn't lose Apple. Now, Ann Baker, very briefly. So Ann sort of picks up the second part of this, something I think is kind of the really key lesson that I would love entrepreneur founder types and uh, or people who might take over their family's company to take from BE 2.0. Anne took over her father's company when she was 29 and she didn't expect to have it. Her father tragically died from an adverse medical uh, event. And she had her constitutional convention and we, she read early drafts of Beyond Entrepreneurship and laid down the values and the purpose of the company and so forth. But the really remarkable thing is that she didn't necessarily know how to lead as a great CEO at that time. But what she committed herself to was the idea that every step of the way, what the company would need, she would become. And so there was, you know, she, she had, there was Ann Baker 1.0, then 2.0, then 2.0, then 3.0. And if, as the company scaled from 1X to 2X, she would scale her leadership from 1X to 2X, and then her leadership from 2X to 4X and so forth. And she's still running the company today, three decades later, very wonderful uh, leader, privately held company. And one of the things that I, both Steve and Ann teach, regardless of how you get into leading the company, there's this myth that they're kind of people who are really good at the entrepreneurial or small business or founder stage of a company. And they're like a, they're like a species. And then as the company grows, we need a new species. We need to bring in the people who are the builders, uh, the people who know how to manage something larger. The, the, mm -hmm. Wrong, wrong, wrong wrong, wrong. Yeah. Fascinating. I hear it all the time. I see it happen all the time. Well, then if, if that's happening all the time, ask yourself a very simple question. Then how do we explain Ann Baker? How do we explain uh, Bill Gates? How do we explain Jeff Bezos? How do we explain Phil Knight? How do we explain Catherine Graham? How do we explain the, the vast majority of the truly great companies, Walt Disney, the founder became the builder. And so every one of your listeners out there who has this sense, like somebody starts telling them, well, you know, you're the founder type, you're the entrepreneur, but you're going to run out of, you're going to have to hand it over to people who can take it to the next stage. And my response to that is, well, you may choose to do that because you don't want to do it, but that's very different than accepting the idea that you can't do it. Talking with Jim, 
I'm struck not just by his massive amount of research and the theories he pioneered about what makes great businesses last and makes the leaders behind them effective, but I'm also struck by how his own life, 30 years into researching and writing about building greatness, mirrors some of the patterns that he's written about. He himself took that entrepreneurial leap, his Thelma and Louise flight. He manages his creativity, his time, and people with the skill of a great leader. And even before that, before he began his own business, he took a Stanford course syllabus that was handed to him, and he tweaked a few words decisively. That was 30 years ago, and it set his life and research on a track that would not be a blip. It would last a whole career. He wrote, this will be a course on how to turn a new venture or small business into an enduring great company. It certainly has been. Jim and I had such a remarkable conversation, and it was so wide-ranging that we've split it into two parts. So you can listen to the continuation of this interview in our next episode. In it, we talk about the famous Stockdale paradox, finding true joy in your work, and what advice he has for starting a business during this pandemic. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please hit subscribe to What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. If you have any friends interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please, we'd love it if you could send them a link to our show. Also, we'd love if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a minute, and it really helps other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. And tell us whose story do you want to hear next on our show? You could also let me know if you're on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who is now frantically searching for orange binders for inspiration, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.